Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream new episodes every Thursday. Today, we're joined by two English heritage experts to talk about a landmark trial that was an important step towards ending slavery in England. Dr. Dominique Bouchard is Head of Learning and Interpretation. Hello. And Dr. Andrew Han is Properties Historian's team leader. Hello there. The case we're due to talk about was Somerset v. Stuart, and it was presided over by Lord Chief Justice William Murray, 1st Earl of Mansfield, who lived at Kenwood, a grand Palladian property on the edge of Hampstead Heath in North London. Lord Mansfield was a dissenting voice against slavery, and his ruling in the Somerset v. Stuart case 250 years ago in 1772 paved the way for the abolition of slavery in Britain and beyond. So, to understand this case, Dominique, we first need to identify the people in it. Who were the main characters? The main individuals involved, the case name gives you a big hint on that, so it's Somerset and Stuart, and it begins to get a little more complicated after that. So, we'll start with James Somerset. So, he was born around 1741 in West Africa, and when he was about eight years old, he was captured and sold to European slavers who transported him to Virginia in what was the colonies. So on the 1st of August, when he was about eight years old in 1749, he was sold to a Scottish merchant called Charles Stewart in Norfolk, Virginia, and entered Stewart's, I guess, service. And in 1764, he was then taken to Boston, where Stewart had been appointed the Receiver General of Customs. Shortly after that, Stewart left to go to England and brought Somerset with him. Stuart came to England to sort of help look after a family matter. And although Somerset wasn't the only enslaved person in Stuart's ownership, James Somerset seems to be the only one who Stuart brought to England with him. That's quite an important decision because that kind of starts the wheels in motion of this entire case, really. Stuart's decision to leave North America and bring his enslaved man with him is, is a crucial part of the story. It definitely is. And actually, the case is very important for lots of reasons, but its effects or the ripples of it were certainly felt in the colonies because there were lots of legal questions to be asked and answered about the relationship between the law in the colonies and English common law. And of course, the legal decisions in the United States, even though obviously it's, a, it's an independent country now, are still ref, still refer to English court, English civil and common law decisions. So, so English law is actually the basis for law in the United States as well. Of course. Could you tell us a bit more about James Somerset and his relationship to Stuart? Yeah, Somerset seems to have been very involved in Stuart's household. As you can imagine, we have evidence of Somerset 
running errands for Stuart, which included overnight trips to Stuart's contacts, delivering letters or and correspondence, and, and sort of being involved in Stuart's networks of communications that, that spanned not just in London and his business in London, but also farther afield. And while this wasn't typical, it also wasn't particularly unusual either. So Somerset was probably a fairly high up in whatever internal hierarchy that Stuart might have had for the enslaved people. And clearly he had a lot of confidence in Somerset's ability to sort of discharge the sorts of activities he's asked him to do. How old was James Somerset when this case was brought over in England? We think he was born in 1741. So when the case was brought in 1771 and 1772, it kind of spanned that year, he would have been 30, 31 years old. So James Somerset has now travelled across the Atlantic with Stuart, Mr. Stuart, his enslaver. But at some point, he gets away from him, does he not? Yeah. So during that period when Somerset was being sent on these errands by Stuart, it sent him around London into the countryside, and it's probably likely that during this period that Somerset would have come into contact with a number of free blacks and also white abolitionists. And so through these sorts of networks, Somerset probably came into contact with the three people who became his godparents when he was baptized, and those were Thomas Walken, Elizabeth Cade, and John Marlowe. And so in August of 1771, in the Church of St. Andrew in Holborn, Somerset was baptized. And it's also around this period that we think that he took on the Christian name James. So in the records that we have of Somerset entering into Stuart's service as an enslaved person, he's always only referred to as Somerset. But after the period when he's baptized in 1771, we have their documentation and, and throughout the court case, he is referred to as James Somerset. So while it's very unlikely that Somerset gave himself the name Somerset, this was one of the things that happened to enslaved people, the name that they were given at birth was removed and they were given a name by their owners. That name Somerset became James Somerset's surname. And he took, we think, the, the name James as his first, as his Christian name. Right. So the next question is, having established some contacts, how did James Somerset acquire lawyers to fight his case? I've seen lots of different descriptions of this, and there's some ambiguity. Some historians suggest that he approached his legal team himself. Other historians suggest that it was his godparents who did it. Given that he was captured in November of 1771, and of course, before his capture, he wouldn't have needed a lawyer, it's most likely that the godparents or someone else very closely related to him would have sought out legal support for him. Ah, I see. So whilst he's doing these errands and travelling around the country, he's made these contacts, but he, he has effectively escaped and then he's recaptured. Is that right? Not exactly. So he's made these contacts while he's travelling the country. Then I guess it was in August of 1771, he's baptised. And after he's baptised, he never goes back to Charles Stewart's service. We've established a bit about James Somerset, how he got his name, the fact that he got baptised in 1771, the fact that he managed to do some errands and get some contacts relating to abolitionism. But we need to talk a little bit more about his captor, his enslaver, Mr. Stewart. Could you tell us a bit more about his background, what he's doing in the Americas, any relationships that he has in England? 
Sure. So Charles Stewart was born in Scotland, but moved to Britain's colonies in the Americas, and he became a, a sort of successful merchant in Norfolk, Virginia. And I should say that it's not particularly untypical for people who were merchants to have to own enslaved people as part of their kind of day-to-day routine life, and for those enslaved people to be purchased and sold without much particular affair or notice. James Somerset, however, when he was purchased by Stuart, was a, a young boy of eight years old. And over the next two decades, Stuart kept him very close and sort of traveled with him. So Stuart's fortunes improved during the Seven Years' War when a ship carrying these Spanish prisoners of war that ran aground near Norfolk, Virginia, that's where Stuart was living. So an, uh, this mob attacked the Spaniards and Stuart intervened and managed to save most of their lives. The colonial authorities thought this was really great and they rewarded him with a post in the Customs Service. So by the time that he left for Britain in 1769, he had made it up to the grade of the Paymaster General of the Americans Customs Board, which is a really very big and very important role. Ah, I can now start to see why this case would be problematic for the British establishment. Yeah. Okay, so we've established the backgrounds of the key people in the case, Somerset and the Stuart. What can you tell us about the presiding judge, William Murray, Lord Chief Justice, and also first Earl of Mansfield, who lived at Kenwood in uh, North London? William Murray is a really interesting person. He was a barrister, he was a politician, he was a judge. He did a lot to reform English law. He was born to Scottish nobility and was educated in Scotland, but then moved to England as a young teenager to take up a place at Westminster School and then went to Oxford, to Christchurch in Oxford and graduated with his degree. And then he was called to the bar in 1730 and then sort of developed this really brilliant reputation as a as an incredible intelligent barrister. So he got involved in politics about a decade later and was an MP for Boroughbridge, which is now in North Yorkshire, and then became Solicitor General, eventually becoming the most powerful British judge of uh, probably of the, the entirety of the 18th century. And his rulings, although some of them are very controversial, play a really important role in shaping jurisprudence. And it's probably worth mentioning at this point, of course, this Kenwood connection. Obviously, that was his residence, his property on Hampstead Heath in North London. But crucially, one of the people who lived there was Dido Bell. Now, give us a quick rundown of who she is and how she came to live there. Mansfield's nephew, who was a captain in the Navy called Sir John Lindsay, uh, and there's a sculpture of him at Kenwood that you can see, he returned to Britain after the Seven Years' War and his assignment in the West Indies, and he brought with him a little girl who he had called Elizabeth. Now, this girl is, was baptized Dido Bell in the 1760s, and she was the daughter of an enslaved woman called Maria, who Captain Lindsay had met after liberating her from the Spanish slaving vessel, which was transporting her. You know, They obviously had a relationship of some sort, and Dido was born. Now, what's really interesting and what isn't really typical at all is that, of course, there would have been many children of mixed heritage who were born in circumstances of an enslaved mother and a free white man, but those relationships were typically not ones which persisted in any kind of probably consensual way. However, Lindsay bought Maria Bell a house in Pensacola, Florida, and he would visit her there. And eventually, 
at some point he brought Dido Bell, their daughter, to live in England permanently with Mansfield and his wife in 1766. So Dido was born in 1761, but she was taken by Lindsay to live in London to be brought up as part of that family about five or six years later. That's a really interesting point, isn't it, really? Because we have the most powerful judge in England who has a mixed heritage relative living with him, and he's, in, he's there in a sort of guardianship kind of role. So that sets up an interesting dynamic for this case, doesn't it? Because he is, shall we say, less establishment than you might expect, if you see what I mean. I think it's really difficult to try to draw a direct connection between Mansfield's ruling in this case and Dido. I mean, clearly his life was affected by having this young woman living with him as part of his household. There were distinctions between the way in which Dido lived in the house. Dido didn't eat with the family at the table with company. There were lines there that weren't crossed, certainly not in public. Dido did help William Murray with his correspondence, and we have evidence from the house of her taking dictation and and things like that. But we don't know, and, and I'm not aware of any records or journal entries that Mansfield left behind, which talk about the influence of having Dido in the house on any of his legal decisions. And that, that, I mean, that would be pretty extraordinary for him to write that down. But also it's difficult then to extrapolate even further in the absence of anything like that to say that, that this influenced his decision. I don't think that we should suppose that the case would have ended in a different way had Dido not been part of his life. And Andrew will be able to speak more about this than me. But I think that you know there was a growing distaste in England for for enslavement. And the more people learned about the actual realities of the experience of enslaved people, the less popular slavery was in England. Well, let's talk about Lord Mansfield's track record with cases of this kind. Did he have experience in this sort of thing up until the Somerset v. Stewart case? I think Somerset v. Stewart was the first legal proceeding that he presided over, which specifically dealt with enslavement. And in fact, he tried very hard not to hear the case. He tried very, very hard to get, as part of the history of the case, he tried to get Charles Stewart to drop it. He tried to get the godparents of James Somerset to purchase him from Charles Stewart. And of course, for their ideological reasons, they didn't want to purchase an enslaved person. They didn't believe in slavery. And Charles Stewart, his case had been taken up by the planters who felt that this was something that a case they really needed to strongly defend, or it could potentially pull the rug out from underneath their entire economic model. So I think in trying to persuade everybody to to make the case go away, as it were, Mansfield is a little bit betraying. He has a sense that this is going to have a big impact on things. And he doesn't see, I think, how it can turn out any other way because of the very technical nature of the case itself, which I'm sure we'll get into. One thing I'd like to sort of try and tease out just briefly is Lord Mansfield's personal situation with a mixed heritage girl living with his family. Would that have been known to the lawyers for Mr. Charles Stewart? I think so. It wasn't, I don't think, you know, it was a secret um, when Mansfield hosted company. Dido was responsible and often took guests to the dairy and talked to them about the rare breed cattle that she helped Mansfield look after. But it wasn't brought up in the case by Stewart's or the planter's lawyers as a mitigating factor or something that should mean that Mansfield shouldn't hear the case. 
So the circumstances of the case being brought to court, what were they exactly? Because right. I gather that there was quite a bit of uh, drama with a ship down the Thames at one stage. Well, absolutely. I'm kind of surprised nobody's made this into a some sort of a, a short a film film <laughs> series or something because it, it's it's an exciting and really brilliant story. So after Somerset is baptized, he runs away and he manages to sort of live in freedom for about two months. But on the 26th of November in 1771, he's kidnapped by slave hunters. And on Stuart's orders, he's delivered to Captain John Knowles, who's the captain of the ship, the Anne and Mary, where Somerset was confined in irons. So he was chained up and was held in the belly of the ship, awaiting transportation to Jamaica, where he was going to be sold again this time to a plantation for labor. So that's sort of what happened. So that becomes the actual trigger for the case. So on the 3rd of December, Somerset's godparents made an application before the court of the King's Bench for a writ of habeas corpus and enlisted uh, Granville Sharp to support the case. For people who don't understand what habeas corpus is, it's obviously a legal term. What is that? It's a legal term, and in Latin, it means you have the body. It is a really fundamental part of British law, and it's very old, and it is absolutely the linchpin of this case. So a writ of habeas corpus is something that gets issued by a court of justice to require that someone who is holding another person in custody has to present the person who is being held. So the writ directs the detainer to bring their prisoner to a court at a specific time and for a particular reason. So that the detainer can explain what's happened effectively. Exactly. You have to present the person who has been held prisoner. And the idea being that it determines whether a prisoner has been afforded due process. So it means that has this person been lawfully detained? Yes. And that opens up this legal can of worms, doesn't it, effectively? Absolutely. So what happens next? Presumably, they have to comply with this court order. James Somerset is taken off this vessel in the Thames. He's still bound, I presume, at this point. And John Knowles, the captain, brings him to court and presents him. And what then happens is that Lord Mansfield says that, OK, we're going to look into it to figure out whether Somerset's personal liberty was violated by being held in custody. So that is the legal question that needs to be answered. Okay. And where are we right now in terms of dates? This is still 1771, isn't it? Yeah, this is November in 1771. So over the next few months, Somerset is free to go about his business. And that's when Mansfield tries everything under the sun to try to get the case not heard. Now, you've sort of intimated earlier that um, people involved in the enslavement industry would have been moving against this case being heard. So were people aware of this case at the time that it would have such large implications for slave traders and enslaved people? Yes, absolutely. I think Mansfield understood it himself, but everybody did. And it was a kind of a moment where you had the anti-slavery group getting really excited to sort of get into it. But you also had the group that felt that wanted slavery to persist or chattel slavery to persist. They're sort of gearing up for this as well, and they're pretty excited about it. So the opposition, which was Charles Stewart's group, that position was argued by John Dunning and William Wallace, and their services were funded by the West Indian planters. And actually, we see here that Charles Stewart's own kind of, his own involvement in this ends up, he ends up getting sidelined, and the West Indian planters start really taking center stage here. And Stewart himself, in a letter, 
wrote, the West Indian planters and merchants have taken it off my hands, and I shall be entirely directed by them in the further defense of it. So he's acknowledging that actually this has become something which is much bigger. Yes, I can see that. The baton has almost been passed, hasn't it, to a a wider group which has got, I presume, a lot of funding power. Well, let's bring in Properties Historians team leader, Dr. Andrew Han now to talk about some of the background of this economic situation. What role, Andrew, did slavery play in the economy of Britain at the time? Well, I think the reason that this is such an important case is because of the hugely significant role that transatlantic slavery played in Britain's prosperity at this time. It's difficult to exaggerate the extent to which the economy and society are are affected by the slave trade. If you look at any different aspect of it, if you look at the pattern of trade itself, the expansion of the British Empire, the industrialization of the country, the development of consumer industries, these can, these can all be linked to the enslavement of Africans and their transportation to the New World. So just to give you an example, if you look at Britain's trading relations, then in 1700, around 80% of our trade was with continental Europe. We're primarily a country that's trading with our continental colleagues. But by 1800, we got 60% of our trade is going either to Africa or to the Americas. So we've completely reoriented our trading relations so that we've moved away from focusing on the on our European contacts and towards this more global outlook, this sort of imperial outlook, focusing on the transatlantic trade. And if you want to think about how this booster trade, how significant it was, well, you can see it in terms of what's often known as a triangular trade, whereby manufactured goods, so goods that are being made in Britain, that would be metalwares or whatever, or cloth, and that sort of thing, these are being exported to West Africa. And in exchange for the enslaved Africans, who were then transported in terrible conditions that Dominique was talking about before to the Caribbean and North America, where they are forced to work without pay on plantations, where they produce goods such as sugar, coffee, cotton, rum, tobacco, those sort of things, consumer goods, which are then brought back to Britain and the rest of Europe as you know, sort of the new sort of commodities. And a lot of this trade is controlled by British merchants and they're protected by an expanded Royal Navy. So you can see that all these different aspects are all intertwined, that the whole growth of us as a, an imperial power is very much linked in with the wealth that could be generated for the enslavement of Africans and their, and their use for plantation labour. I mean, just looking at it from the perspective of the different industries, you know, they've got the cloth industry, the iron industry, all these ones are producing things which are then sent out to the colonies. There are other industries, of course, which rely on, for the raw materials, on the labour of enslaved Africans. So, for example, the cotton textile industry, the cornerstone of the Industrial Revolution, a lot of the cotton is being produced in the colonies by enslaved labourers. Also, the mahogany and rosewood, which have been harvested by the enslaved in Central America and Jamaica, places like that, is used by the furniture makers. So you can see all these different industries are intertwined with the development of enslavement and certainly the growing role of Britain in that slave trade during the course of the 18th century. And also, if we're thinking about our commercial background, the development of banking, insurance and commercial institutions like the Stock Exchange in Britain, again, are totally intertwined with enslavement and the, the burgeoning slave trade. And there are even debates about whether you know the financing of industrialization is could be linked directly to enslavement. I mean, that's a bit more of a moot point, but we can still argue that really that the development of Britain as a, the first industrial nation owes a lot of its origins to this earlier trade in the, across the Atlantic. 
And in terms of what happens with that money, of course, it's invested in bricks and mortar, in the building of houses, particularly by the by a lot of the wealthy slave traders and uh, and bankers and merchants who benefited from the trade. Broadly speaking, then, a lot of the British economy is linked in some way to the enslavement of African peoples. And the Royal Navy, the establishment, general commercial interests are all linked in with that. Can you tell us a bit more about the Navy's um, interests in this? Well, the Navy played an absolutely crucial role in terms of, well, it both provided protection for those merchants who were trading, either those trading directly in, in the enslaved and those who were trading in enslaved-produced goods. But it also, uh, the Navy was crucial in our building of our empire by going across the Atlantic and uh, expanding our empire, defeating our competitor powers, such as the Dutch, the French, the Spanish, whatever, and building and expanding our empire to provide more territories for planters to develop plantations on which to exploit the enslaved laborers. So the military, in terms of the navy, was intimately intertwined with the sort of economic policy of imperial expansion and developing the expansion of the economy and the transatlantic slave economy of slave-produced wealth. So if you fast forward to the period of abolition, then the navy plays a crucial role in policing the decision to abolish the slave trade in terms of policing those waterways off the coast of West Africa through the West African squadron and basically intercepting slave ships of foreign nations such as the Portuguese, Dutch and French and so forth and rescuing the enslaved from those those vessels. So the Navy's switches from basically from poacher to gamekeeper in terms of moving from a supporting the enslavement of African labourers to basically being the means that Britain had to actually not only extinguish the slave trade for its own vessels, but try to coerce other countries to stop the slave trade as well. Can you tell us then, Andrew, to what extent the commercial landscape had an influence on property building as a result of profits made from enslavement? Well, I think the first thing to say is that slavery was generating immense wealth for a number of people, both in the Caribbean and in Britain. And a lot of those profits were invested back into Britain. And in some cases, that was in the form of planters purchasing property. And we got an example here, um, of the slave trader and banker and merchant Peter Tellison, who swapped his London residence for an estate in Yorkshire, the Broadsworth Hall estate in 1791 upon his retirement from trade. So here you've got a case of someone buying into landed wealth for the money they'd made from commerce linked to enslavement. You also had people who were making money through business, through industry, like the Foley family of Whitley Court, who through iron manufacture part of which was linked to supplying trade goods for the African trade and for the Caribbean trade. And they, through the extra wealth they generated through that, were able to rebuild and renovate the house. So in some cases, it was people who already owned estates who were able to sort of renovate them and improve them through the money they were acquiring through the transatlantic slave economy. There was also investments in just conspicuous consumption, buying of luxury goods and uh, so forth for spending on horses and carriages and things like that. And also investment in in industries or investment in things like stocks and shares and in um, infrastructure like 
canals and turnpike trusts. So there was lots of different ways that this money was reinvested. So some of it was in consumption, but others were in, in more sort of productive investment. But there was certainly a massive influx of capital coming into Britain from the, the proceeds of the slave trade and the slave economy. So that's the picture from the merchant's point of view, shall we say. What about the ordinary person on the street? What's the public mood regarding slavery at this time in the 1770s particularly? I think in a way the public mood mirrors what Dominique has described from the legal case. It's it's quite polarised regarding slavery. You've had campaigns for abolition which have been really going on since the 17th century particularly amongst Christian groups such as the Quakers and Evangelicals who are very much opposed to slavery. And and as the 18th century progress uh, wears on, these campaigns build up strength. And also by the 1760s, you're getting secular thinkers, people such as Granville Sharp, who's already been mentioned, who take up the cause, criticising enslavement for its violation of the rights of man. So you've got these ideas building up. There's quite a sort of groundswell of opinion, anti-slavery opinion. There are also a number of notable black abolitionists, including Aquiano, but their full impact wasn't really felt until after the ruling. So we must try and get ourselves in the right chronology here. And I think also you need to think about the fact that the press are are reporting slave rebellions, the regularity of there being slave rebellions out in the Caribbean. So, for instance, in 1761, you have Taki's War in Jamaica, and then you've also got the Burbis slave revolt in Guyana in 1763. So... These all lead to increasing public disquiet. There's a lot more public knowledge about the awful conditions which the enslaved are being kept and are living and working in the Caribbean and North America. So that is starting to build up this sort of level of disgust of the slave trade within the country. But at the same time, as Dominique mentioned earlier, there's this very powerful pro-slavery planter lobby. Not only does it have significant representation within Parliament, but it also has royal support in terms of the royal support for the um, the Royal African Company. So it, they have a, a lot of sort of the leading lights in the country are, are sort of on their side. In the 1770s, there's around 50 MPs who have direct plantation interests. So these are people who have direct reason for supporting the planter lobby. For instance, you've got an example of this would be someone like Richard Pennant, MP for Liverpool from 1761 right through to 1790. He's the absentee owner of six sugar plantations in Jamaica. And then in the 1760s, this powerful grouping of planters forms into a society of the West Indian planters, and they form a really powerful lobbying body that's used both to lobby in Parliament for things to make sure that abolition doesn't get a hearing, but also to call for things like lowering duties on sugar and protecting the interests of the slave economy more generally. And you get merchants in places like Bristol, Liverpool and London who are regularly petitioning Parliament in support of maintaining the slave trade. So you've got these two sides who are very much going against each other in in this respect. For the majority of sort of landowners, merchants, industrialists in the country who are not directly involved in the slave trade, I think for them, it's more a case of their own self-interests. A lot of them, they may not be directly involved, but they gain sort of indirect benefits from the economic wealth and whatever generated by enslavement. So they have relatively little incentive to sort of campaign directly against it. So you find that amongst some of the sort of major industrialists and some of the the leading landowners of the time who are who have representatives in parliament. There is a sort of large sort of middle ground of people who aren't actively supporting of enslavement, but they're not really campaigning against it either. 
And for ordinary people, I think they're not immune to these debates, but they have lots of other problems closer at home, such as the poor working conditions, the slum housing, the epidemic diseases that are confronting them on a daily basis. So I think for the educated working classes, I think this is an issue that's grow- of growing importance. But for you know a large number of people, their day-to-day existence is what matters more to them than these debates going on in Parliament and so forth. It's quite a large diversion that we've just gone on there, but I think it's an important one, isn't it, to understand the real complex context to this entire story. So let's return to the courtroom now. And when the case was opened, we'll bring back Dominique. And when and where was the case heard? Because you told us earlier that James Somerset was allowed to go about his own business for a few months after this habeas corpus writ. Yep. And it was during that time that Mansfield really tried to get the case dissolved. You know, he tried to persuade Stewart to free Somerset because that had been successful in, in several other similar cases, not that Mansfield oversaw. And of course, he, Stewart probably didn't have much of an option anyway, because it was the West Indian planters that were financing his defense. So it was immediately seen as a test of the legality of slavery in England. And its proceedings were obviously, as Andrew says, very, very closely followed by West Indian planters and anyone who had financial interest in the slave economy and also by abolitionists. And while the planters had campaigned for a decision, they wanted Mansfield to say in his ruling that the colonial laws related to slavery would be enforceable in England. Granville Sharp, who was obviously on the side of James Somerset, was advocating a ruling what that would forbid slavery in England. So everybody's trying to sort of hitch their wagon onto the ruling here. What ended up happening was that the ruling was very narrow. And what that means is that Mansfield ruled on the case of habeas corpus. You know, was James Somerset being taken into custody? Was that a violation of his liberty? So the ruling is really important. So I'm going to read out excerpts from it so that everyone can hear exactly what it says. The only question before us is whether the cause on the return is sufficient. So that means is the writ of habeas corpus, has this custodial action, is that legal? So Mansfield continues, accordingly, the return of states that the slave departed and refused to serve, whereupon he was kept to be sold abroad. So high an act of dominion must be recognized by the law of the country where it is used. The power of the master over his slave has been extremely different in different countries. The state of slavery is of such a nature that it is incapable of being introduced on any reasons, moral or political, but only by positive law, which preserves its force long after the reasons, occasions, and time itself from whence it was created is erased from memory. It is so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. Whatever inconveniences, therefore, that may follow from this decision, I cannot say this case is allowed or approved by the law of England, and therefore the black must be discharged. So what he's saying effectively through that is that there is no positive law, quote unquote, that pre-existed for any of this to happen. Correct. That's exactly right. That makes it a complete bombshell, doesn't it? It does. It's a really clever bombshell because he's not saying that slavery is legal or is illegal. What he's saying is that the contract or the right of Charles Stewart to hold James Somerset is not legal. And so that meant that a master couldn't seize a slave in England and detain him in preparation for sending that person then out of the realm to be sold. 
and that meant that habeas corpus was a right available to enslaved people to forestall that kind of a seizure, deportation, and sale because they weren't chattel or property. They were servants and therefore persons invested with certain but definitely limited protections. Yes, and that's a really important microscopic point, isn't it, really? It's the, um, and it's the whole basis for the ruling. Um, yes. So Mansfield found that Captain Knowles, or Stuart for that matter, did not have the legal right to detain Somerset. When did he make this ruling then, bearing in mind when the case would have started, when it ended? He made the ruling on the 22nd of June, 1772. So how long had the case lasted? It started in, I guess, early December. So Somerset was captured on the 26th of November. The case went to the writ of habeas corpus, which issued, I think, on the 6th of December, 1771. And now it's about seven months later. Although the case wasn't argued over that whole period, there's a good portion of that time when Mansfield was just trying to get it to go away. This is a groundbreaking result. What's the implication, though, for the ruling across the British economy? I think it's sort of a, a mixed bag for everybody in the end. Obviously, it's great for James Somerset. He gets to go free and, and live his life. It's not as bad as the planters were fearing, and it's not as good as Granville Sharp was hoping. But in the public eye or in the public understanding, you know, these very, very technical parts of the law aren't something that most people in the 1770s or probably today understand. But five days later, on the 27th of June, the public advertiser has a, a little article that it reports nearly 200 black people had a big party in a public house in Westminster to celebrate the triumph. And this is a quote from that article. To celebrate the triumph of their brother Somerset had obtained over Mr. Stewart, his master, Lord Mansfield's health was echoed round the room and the evening was concluded with the ball. Tickets cost five shillings which is almost 40 pounds today. So this is a really, really big deal. So it was seen amongst many people as slavery being abolished. That approach or that, that interpretation has kind of persisted all the way through into the 21st century. And you'll see things now where people will say, oh, this was the case that abolished slavery. Or the case that started the abolition of slavery. I think it definitely was a, you know, a nail in the coffin. It was a very big nail in the coffin of slavery. And it, it had implications in the colonies as well. And it probably, almost very importantly, let slave owners know that if they came to England, that maybe they needed to think twice about bringing enslaved people with them and carrying on the kind of lifestyle that they were accustomed to in the colonies, that that was inappropriate unwelcome and, and illegal in England. But despite all this, I think I'm right in saying that in the American colonies, the practice of slavery, if not accelerated, certainly kept going at the same pace, whereas in England, on the other side of the Atlantic, things were going the other way. Yes. And that was also largely down to the way in which the British imperial economy was developing. There was more profits to be made, more opportunities in South Asia and Southeast Asia. The sort of the exploration, which was part of the 
naval and, and just part of Britain's imperial, I guess, strategy was to understand what opportunities there were in other parts of the world. And in many of those instances, that was very bad news for the indigenous populations of those areas that were exploited, that were killed, where there was more disease. But the economic opportunities, particularly in, in India and in South Asia and in Southeast Asia, started to provide a more lucrative basis for imperial expansion. And so the focus ended up sort of shifting. So James Somerset is a free man. Charles Stewart has egg on his face. Is that fair? <laughs> oh, definitely. He's pretty annoyed. After the case, I'm not aware of any documentation of James Somerset or his life after that. He kind of disappears from the historical record. And the last sort of we know about him was from a letter that John Riddle, who is a friend of Charles Stewart, wrote. So on the 10th of July, 1772, John Riddle wrote to Charles Stewart, I am disappointed by Mr. Dublin, who has run away. He told the servants that he received a letter from his uncle Somerset, acquainting him that Lord Mansfield had given them their freedoms, and he was determined to leave me as soon as I returned from London, which he did without even speaking to me. I don't find that he has gone off with anything of mine, only carried off his own clothes, which I don't know whether he had any right to do so. I shall not give myself any trouble to look after the ungrateful villain. That sort of um, application of the ruling, and whilst being a popular interpretation, trickled down pretty quickly to individuals. Definitely. And we know that there were other cases that were brought along these lines. And it was really it, it, that network that I talked about earlier that potentially was the one that connected James Somerset with the people who baptized him and sort of set this whole thing into motion was probably the same network that passed information about this ruling on. And the letter that we have from Riddle is really interesting. I mean, it's clearly a little bit of a piece of work, it's interesting because it tells us so much about Somerset. You know, Somerset must have met Mr. Dublin on one of his errands. He must have stayed in touch with him or knew how to contact him. We know from that that Somerset could write. We know from that that Somerset had means to get a letter to Mr. Dublin. And this is all really, really interesting and tells us quite a bit about the kinds of networks that people had access to, particularly people who had formerly been enslaved, or Black people in Britain at the time. We know from the Gentleman's Magazine that from the, the 18th century, the Gentleman's Magazine estimated that there are between 10 and 20,000 Black people in London, and maybe around 5,000 Black people in other parts of England, mostly around Liverpool and Bristol, as you'd expect, but also you know across the country. And those people would have come from many different countries and backgrounds, but the London Black communities, you know, they provided not just those social links, but they were also kind of a an informal political network. So that covers what happened to Mr. James Somerset and Mr. Charles Stewart after the case. What happens to William Murray, Lord Chief Justice and First Earl of Mansfield, who made this important ruling? What happens to him and his career? He's as far as anyone could go in terms of his role. And he continues to make very, very important legal rulings related to mercantile law changes, related to copyright law. And in 1783, you have the case of the Zong Massacre, which he also presided over. An insurance case when more than 130 African slaves were thrown overboard by the slave ship, the Zong, by British crew. And William Grenson, which was the slave trading syndicate, 
owned the ship, you know, as part of their business proceedings. And then when the crew threw the slaves overboard, William Grenson sought to get a payout for the insurance value. And the Zong massacre, massacre case itself was really important, I think, in moving more people, more people aware of, again, the actual horrors of enslavement. So they lost their insurance claim against the insurers over the men who went overboard. That's right. Right. Okay. How is English Heritage commemorating this ruling at Kenwood, which was William Murray's former home during this year, 2022? So we're really excited about this anniversary. On the 22nd of June, 2022, we will be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the ruling on the day of the ruling by having a panel discussion followed by short performances of classical music. We're going to have a little reception afterwards and talk about the significance of the ruling, but also its enduring legacy today. You know, I think one of the important things for us as an organization, English Heritage, why do we exist, is what's the relevance of all of this stuff today? Clearly, transatlantic slavery has been illegal for a very long time. People don't necessarily quote the Somerset v. Stewart case. It's not something which is high up in the public consciousness, but of course, the enduring role of these decisions and the nature of the precedent that they set informs legal decisions for generations and for potentially for hundreds of years. So at the event on the 22nd, we'll be joined by a barrister called Parosha Chandron, who's one of Britain's most really incredible human rights lawyers who prosecutes modern slavery. Can English Heritage members, ordinary members of the public, come along and attend and have a listen to the discussion? Yes, it's going to be open to everyone. We're going to be holding it in the Adam Library in Kenwood, which is incredibly exciting. We don't usually do events in the Adam Library because of its historical significance and the challenges around being in that historic interior. We'll be selling tickets. They should be available on our website already. I think this goes out on the on June 16. So please have a look on the on the website. And we're hoping, if the weather's fine, to have a nice little reception to help commemorate it on the terrace after the panel discussion and musical performances. So I suppose the, the thing that really occurs to me, having covered this entire story with both of you, is that this is fantastic material for a multi-part drama series or at least a film, because it is such an important story from a human interest, but also from a legal point of view. When you think about some of the other things that have happened in recent years with Black Lives Matter protests, uh, this sort of thing. What are your thoughts on it being brought to the screen? It's a compelling story, isn't it? It's one that's got drama in it. It's got great significance for the uh, you know the future direction of policy relating to enslavement, and and you know it can genuinely be seen as as Dominique said before, about the first nail in the coffin of transatlantic slave trade. So, you know, it's it deserves to be more widely known than it is currently. From my perspective, I think, you know, a lot of the histories that we hear about around transatlantic slavery, we don't focus on the lives of the enslaved people because their lives, their voices and their experiences was more that they weren't recorded, they were erased. Even their names that they were given when they were born were taken away from them. And I think what I find so inspiring about the story of James Somerset is that he is at the center of this. It's not about Lord Mansfield. It's not about Charles Stewart. It's about James Somerset. And it would be great to have more opportunities to be able to center 
around the life of someone like James Somerset to learn more about him. And it would be great if more documents around his life came up, you know, if we were able to find out more about what happened to him after the decision. But the fact that we don't know very much is one of the real challenges that historians face and that we face in trying to bring to life these stories and try to remember these people whose lives transformed Britain. If you think of the abolition of slavery as one of the most important things that happened in the last 250 years, James Somerset is one of the most important people in that narrative. And he's somebody we just don't know all that much about. And his name, I don't know how much of that is something that people know. Just people know about the abolition of slavery. They've heard of the abolition of slave trade act, but have they heard of James Somerset? Yes, I think that's a really interesting point. One man who brought a case via his guardians and took on the might of the British establishment and the British Empire and then disappeared from history. I think that's a a really interesting sort of final point to touch on that his sort of his ghost lingers in a way. But even though we don't know what happened to Mm -hmm. him. That's right. And there's so many other I mean, he's just one person. There's so many other people whose lives have Mm -hmm. transformed the past. And we want to, when we try to tell the story of a place, you know, the National Heritage Collection that we steward are mainly places. We only really know a small fraction of the people who ever had an important role to play in those places. If they were called king or queen, we definitely know about them. Mm -hmm. But the people who built them, the people who worked in them, the people who, you know, worked in the kitchens and fed everybody, all of those people are really important. And part of our job as historians is to challenge the past to give up these names that it holds on to so tightly. Well, I think after this podcast, many people now will be very familiar with the name James Somerset. And I think hopefully we've done his story justice by at least bringing this two people's public consciousness on the anniversary as well. Oh, definitely. I definitely agree. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're uncovering Chalk Hill art. The human inhumanity of a giant, something that's like us and yet is terrifyingly unlike us. The beauty and the speed and grace of a horse. These figures capture things that are far more eternal and timeless. Thanks for listening. See you next time.